Christianity is a religion of transformation. It's a religion of change. When God works in our lives and we receive the gift of His salvation in Christ Jesus and we're put in the right with God, God gives us the gift of His Holy Spirit for the purpose of changing me. He wants me to be a different person. God is trying to weed out and root out all the sin and the evil and the vice, get it out of my life. And He's trying to replace all the hatred and the anger and the bitterness and the despair and all the dysfunctionalism in my life. He's trying to replace that with love and joy and peace and contentment and so forth. So Christianity is a religion of change. It's a religion of transformation. God doesn't save us so that we just keep on living in our sins and keep on espousing the same old thought patterns. God saves us to change us, and the change begins on the inside through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's very important. We're saved to be changed. In fact, we're going to be so thoroughly changed that we're going to be like Christ. Uh, Even when we die and Christ comes and we're raised from the dead at the second coming of Christ and we have new resurrection bodies, well, we'll really be changed. We'll have new bodies that are like the glorious resurrection body of Christ, no longer subject to death and decay. So that's that's the change that's coming for us as Christians. And then number three, it's at the bottom here, I hope you can see it, but I find this also very important, that Christianity is a religion of hope. It is a religion of hope. We live in a world where lots of people are despondent, they're sad, they're sorrowful, they're full of despair. Their only hope is in fate. They hope the government works good. They hope the government somehow gets them through life. Um, Who knows what they're hoping in? But our hope is in a great and awesome God who's all-powerful, who made the universe, who made us as the crowning glory of his creation, who cares about us and is interested in us and loves us more than we'll ever know. Our lives are not just left to fate. We're not left to fend for ourselves. Our lives as Christians are in the hands of Almighty God. And so we have this profound sense of hope because our hope is in the God who is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And our hope even goes beyond this life because God has promised us a great future. Eternal life. We're part of the eternal kingdom of Jesus. So I find these three aspects of Christianity to be very profound and very significant. And they're very very unique and exclusive to Christianity. I do not know of another religion in the world that can offer the kind of hope that we Christians have because of the God we serve, the Bible we read, and the promises that God has made to us, his people. So, tonight I would like to just go back to number one, and I would like to just go to the Old Testament And look at some passages that give us just an inkling of God's profound goodness. And by the way, I know I have the word grace up here, and then I have God's goodness in parentheses, but when we're talking about God's grace, we could just broaden the word field to include God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love, God's compassion, God's kindness. We can just kind of look at all of that together. So now let's go to the Old Testament, and I have a few passages, and hopefully we'll have time to look at them tonight. God is good. And we'll just uh, look at these Old Testament passages. So let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. Let's start there. There is so much in Deuteronomy uh, about God's goodness. In fact, the whole Bible is just oozing with God's goodness. It it almost seems uh, almost a little trivial for me to try to put up a series of passages and try to say, well, these passages speak about God's goodness. The whole Bible, from start to finish, is just bristling with God's goodness. But, you know, we only have so much time tonight, and I don't think you want to be here till 12 midnight, so let's just 
just narrow it down to a few passages just to give us an idea of God's profound goodness and just to see how God good is. Uh, Okay, let's go to Deuteronomy. If you will, take your Bibles. Uh, We'll take these all in order so it should be easy to follow along. Um, Deuteronomy, by the way, Deuteronomy is all about preparing to enter the promised land. It is a reiteration of what God wants and what God expects. It, It is written to get the people ready to enter the promised land. It is a preparation for receiving God's blessing. So in in Deuteronomy, there is this reminder of all that God has done for his people. In other words, we need to be a reflective, thoughtful people. We need to think about God's profound goodness that he's given to us. And it's a reminder of the covenant relationship. God has entered into a covenant agreement with his people. And God has basically said, if you serve me and keep my commandments and you worship no other gods, but you worship me exclusively, I'll pour out my blessing on you like what you wouldn't believe. But if you rebel against me and don't keep my commandments and you start to worship and serve other gods, I'm going to be deeply offended. And I'm going to spew you out of the land. By the way, the land is a gift from God. The land represents God's grace. And so that's what Deuteronomy is all about. So let's go to chapter 2, if you will, and we'll just survey a few of these passages. Notice chapter 2, verse 7. There's a reflection here in all their wilderness wanderings. And in chapter 2, verse 7, we have this statement. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. God knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, see it's not a day or two, it's not even a year or two, 40 years, these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. But that's God's goodness. God never forsook his people. He never abandoned them. God brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them and he brought them out in the wilderness just to prove to them that he is sufficient for them. They don't need any other gods. All they need is God. Everything they need, God will provide for them. And this is an important lesson for the people to learn before they enter the promised land. So when they enter the promised land and they enjoy all these good things from the hand of God, they'll remember, all we need is God. God is sufficient. God alone is sufficient for us. We don't need to bow down and worship any other idols. We don't need to trade in our God and get a new God. We don't need to add this repertoire of other gods just in case somehow God falls through and things don't work out with this. No, no, no. God is sufficient. That's all they need is God. And that's what God was trying to teach them in the wilderness uh, experience. So these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Wow. That's God's goodness. 40 years through the wilderness, just running around in the wilderness... The older generation had to die off first before they could enter the land because that was the unbelieving, faithless generation who rebelled and uh, too many times against God. God punished them in that way. But here we have this great statement. You're in the wilderness 40 years. God has been with you. You've lacked nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, wrote David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is shepherding me. Therefore, I shall lack nothing. And our scripture reading this morning was from Psalm 34. The young lions do hunger and suffer want and need. But the one who trusts in the Lord, the one who fears the Lord, shall not lack any good thing. God is good. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just flip the page, flip two pages if you will, maybe three pages. 
and we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6 and verse 10. And it, shall, and it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land. You see, Deuteronomy is preparing the people for entering the land. So when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, which he promised to your fathers. So God is good, he keeps his promises. God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that that land, that piece of real estate would belong to them. Therefore, God will keep his promise. Even if the children of Israel are rebellious and they're not worthy and deserving of it, God will keep his word because God is good and he keeps his promises. So, And it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore, of which he promised to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you large and beautiful uh, cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you have eaten and are full. Then verse 12 says, Then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. But you see what God is saying here. God is giving you all this. God is giving you this land which you didn't work for and you didn't earn or deserve. God is giving you all these beautiful cities. You didn't build them. Houses full of good things. Well, you didn't fill them up with good things. Wells that have already been hewn out of rock and you didn't dig them. Vineyards and olive groves and so forth. You didn't plant them. But God is giving you all of these things as a gift because God is good and God is generous. So, remember the generosity of God. Remember the one who gave you all these things. And when you're in the land and you're satisfied and full and you're living a good life, don't forget for one minute who gave you all those things. Don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord's goodness. Don't forget the Lord's generosity. Don't forget the Lord's grace. He's the one that showed you his grace just by virtue of bringing you out of that terrible place of bondage and slavery and suffering and misery and anguish and servitude. He brought you out of bondage into a wonderful place that you didn't work for, you didn't earn, and you didn't deserve it. Okay, let's go to verse 20. Same chapter, verse 20. Uh, Verse 20, when your sons ask in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, it's referring to the the law of God. What is the meaning of the law of God? Why is it that we're supposed to keep the law of God, in other words? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Who brought them out? The Lord brought them out of Egypt with a mighty, powerful hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he, the Lord, brought us out from there that he might bring us in, into the land. To give us the land of which he swore, of which he promised to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. So we have this wonderful uh, instruction for fathers to instruct their sons. What's the meaning? Why, Why are we supposed to keep all these laws? That's a way of expressing our gratitude to God. 
It's our way of saying, thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, God, for bringing us out of Egypt, that miserable place, that wretched place of slavery, and bringing us into this wonderful, beautiful land that flows with milk and honey and giving us all these good things. Lord, it's only right that we should serve you and fear you in view of your profound goodness and generosity to us. All right, let's go to the next chapter, chapter 7. And uh, I think we want verses 1 through 8. So, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and keep in mind, who's bringing them in? God is bringing them in. It's a gift from God. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. See, even that's a miracle. God is working through his people to cast all of these nations out. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now notice verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath or the promise which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Go in and utterly destroy all these pagan people. They're worthy and deserving of God's judgment. I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you the land not because you're so good or you're so mighty or you're so populous. I'm giving you the land simply because I chose. God says, I chose in my sovereign grace, I chose to love you. I set my love upon you. I chose Abraham. I made a promise to Abraham. And not because he was so good, but just because I wanted to make a promise to Abraham that I would give him this land and I'm going to keep my word, I'm going to keep my promise. That reflects the profound goodness of God. One more passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 9. If you will, Deuteronomy 9. And again, in this passage, God is especially driving home the point of his profound goodness in the face of the unworthiness of his people. His people do not deserve what God is giving to them. They have not worked for it. They have not earned it. Uh, God's people cannot go to God and say, God, we've been so well-behaved in the wilderness. We were just so obedient. We were so submissive, God. We're deserving of all this. No. That God says just the opposite. You're a terrible, stubborn, stiff-necked people. You don't want to keep my laws. But I'm giving you the land because I'm good. I'm going to do what I promised Abraham. All right. Chapter 9, and I have what? Verses 1 through 6 here. Chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, 
the descendants of Anakim, whom you know, uh, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, saying, Oh, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. So, uh, so far God has said, don't, don't, think, don't think I'm giving you this land and bringing you in because you're so righteous. No, no, no. It's because these people are so evil. They're so evil that the time for my judgment has come. As far as I know, most of these people all worshipped false gods, and the false gods they worshipped all required human sacrifices. God was angry with that. That's an abomination to God. And evidently, from the viewpoint of God, God had given these people enough time to repent. They had more than enough time to repent. They had the knowledge of God. They could have known God. They could have sought God, but they refused. So in the providence of God, in the eternal mind of God, it's time for his judgment. Okay, now verse 5. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore, which the Lord promised to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stiff-necked people. Boy, the Bible is blunt, isn't it? <laughs> but do you get the message? What is God saying? You know, don't, don't you people get proud and arrogant and cocky and think that God is giving you all this land because you're so good and you're so pious and you're so righteous and you're so holy. No, you're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. You just don't want to obey God. God is giving you the land because God is good. God is a God of grace. God is a God of compassion and mercy. God is good, and he's good because he's going to fulfill the promise that he spoke to Abraham. If God didn't fulfill his promises, he wouldn't be good. But he fulfills his promises, therefore he's good. Now, kind of think, think forward to the New Testament. What do we read in the New Testament? Not because of works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's because of God's mercy that he saved us. For by grace you are saved, through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should Same when we get to the New Testament. God gives us the gift of his salvation in Christ Jesus, not because we're so righteous, not because we've worked for it, but because God is good. Joshua 24. So just go to the very next book in your Bible. Go to the book of Joshua. Joshua 24. We uh, we come to the very end of Joshua. Joshua is giving final instructions to the covenant people before he dies. Joshua 24. And Joshua is giving them the message from God. And Joshua is encouraging these people to make up their minds who they are going to serve. 
Get rid of all your idols. If you brought some idols out from Egypt, if you still have these idols with you, get rid of them. Make sure you're going to worship the Lord God and Him alone. Worship God exclusively. And Joshua is giving this message from God, and God is telling His people, I and I alone am worthy of your exclusive worship. And in this whole chapter, God recounts His profound goodness to His people. But just look at two verses. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 13. What does God tell His people? I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Again, God is reminding His people how good He is, how generous He is. When God gives good things, boy, He really gives good things. Now verse 14, Now therefore, in view of the profound goodness of generosity... Uh, of God, in view of the, the, the grace of God, in view of the fact that God has given you things you didn't work for, you didn't earn, and you didn't even deserve. In view of this, now therefore fear the Lord. Have the profoundest sense of reverence for God. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away, get rid of, put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river. And in Egypt, serve the Lord. Isn't that one of the great reasons, the great motivations for serving the Lord? God is good. God has saved my soul. He has given me a right standing before God the Father. Uh, I'm put in the right with God. I have been given the gift of, of the Holy Spirit. God has been good to me in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I need to serve the Lord. Let's just go to Psalms. A couple of passages in Psalms. Let's keep going here. We're doing good. Uh, Psalm, one, uh, Psalm uh, 100. Right, Psalm 100. Perhaps uh, some of you have memorized this Psalm. Psalm 100. It's a psalm that calls us to worship God. It calls us to be glad in God. It calls us to rejoice in Him. And we're told at the very end one of the reasons why we should worship God. Verse 5. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. Some translations say His uh, steadfast love is everlasting. And his truth, in other words, his faithfulness, his truthfulness to himself, his truthfulness to his word, in other words, his faithfulness endures to all generations. God is good. His mercy and his steadfast love lasts forever. And his truth or his faithfulness endures to all generations. That's the reason we come and we honor God, we worship him, we rejoice in him, and we serve him. Flip over to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And this begins uh, with a summons. Uh, Perhaps the psalm writer here, David, is talking to his own soul. Perhaps he's trying to cheer up his own soul. Um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's a picture of God's profound goodness. And what we are to do in response to God's goodness is just spend our days blessing his name, praising his name, never, never forgetting and never ceasing to remember all his acts of kindness and goodness to us each and every day of our lives. All right, let's go to our last passage, Jeremiah 33. So go past, uh, yeah, go past uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, go past Isaiah, 
and we come to Jeremiah. So, I suppose you could say, we've started back with our survey in Deuteronomy. That was before the people entered the land. Then we went to Joshua, they were in the land. Now we have fast-forwarded all the way down to the time of the prophets. Many, many years later, many generations later, what has happened? The people did not keep the commandments of God. They disobeyed God. They're worshiping false idols. God is displeased. So in God's goodness, God has raised up all these prophets, and they're calling his people back to himself. They're calling the people to repent. Change your ways. God will forgive you. Come back to the law of God. Serve God anew. Otherwise, God will have to do what he said he would do. God will have to keep his word once again. And if you don't return from the error of your ways, God will spew you out of the land. You're going to lose the gift. God's going to take the land away from you. God will send nations in to judge you and punish you and take you away. That represents God's goodness. But judgment is on the door. The Babylonians are coming. And as you know, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, came and had three major campaigns against uh, uh, Judah and Jerusalem. I believe it was 605 B.C., uh, 597 B.C., and a final campaign in 586 B.C. We are fast approaching that time when Jerusalem will uh, be destroyed and, and burned down and the temple will be destroyed as well. So now the prophetic message is one of, of judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment is at the door. But I want you to notice as I read these few, few uh, verses here, the profound goodness of God, even in the midst of God's impending judgment. God is good. So this is uh, Jeremiah 33. Let me just begin reading in verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. That's what they did. When the king didn't like what the prophet said, just go shut him up in jail. That'll keep him quiet. Well, it didn't keep him too quiet. Uh, Jeremiah was still receiving the word of the Lord. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. In other words, the situation is bleak. It's terrible. The, the Babylonians are coming. They're going to be judged. They're going to be hauled away. Many people are going to be slaughtered and killed and families are going to be separated. It's, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. But in the midst of this unfolding drama that's very bad, God says, call to me and I will answer you. Just, just call out to me in faith and I will show you great and mighty things which you don't know. I will show you such good things that your minds, your small puny minds, can't even possibly conceive of the good things I'm going to do for you. Verse 4. Four, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword... They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men, whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. So God is angry, and God is certainly going to punish these people, and he flat out tells them, I'm punishing you for your evil and your sin. Verse 6, Behold, I will bring it health and healing, I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captive of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. 
I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for. Even in the midst of this terrible unfolding uh, punishment of God that he is bringing on his people for their sins that they rightly deserve, God is speaking a word of encouragement. You people can't imagine all the good that I'm going to do for you in the future. Wow. God is good. And now verses uh, 14 to 18, and we'll wrap it up here for this evening. So, just drop your eye down to verse uh, 14. Verse 14. Behold, the days are coming. See, the, the, the days aren't here yet. These people are going to live in hope. That kind of gets back to one of the great Uh, The great aspects of Christianity are God is a God of hope. God makes promises. Whenever God makes promises, we get to live in hope of those promises being fulfilled. So, verse 14, The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which uh, she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Uh, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack any man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. We recognize this to be a promise of the coming Messiah and the restoration of Israel. God is good. You can read your entire Old Testament, you can read your entire New Testament, and you're constantly reading about the goodness of God. And I believe we, as a spiritually alert people, a spiritually sensitive people, a spiritually vigilant people, we need to be be mindful of God's goodness and always thanking God for his goodness to us. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, again, we, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping a God who is good. Absolutely good. Purely good. And Lord, we thank you that we have received time and time again from the hand of your generosity. And I just pray, Lord, that we would live lives worthy of this profound goodness that you have shown to us, Lord, that we might just want to rejoice in you and praise your name and and do your will and keep your commandments, Lord, just as an expression of gratitude for all the goodness that you have shown to us. So I pray as we leave this service tonight, Lord, our thoughts might be fixed on our great God who is infinitely good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing about God's goodness shown to us in Christ. Uh, Let's sing two verses of uh, hymn number 155 at Calvary. We'll sing the first and the last. The first and the last, hymn number 155. 155 at Calvary. All right, let me give you the introduction. 155, first and last. 